When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thanks for joining me for another Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. Really appreciate all of you joining us. If you haven't done so, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do so. Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And please rate and review the show. And, of course, you can find all of our programming, CannabisRadio.com. Let's get right to our guest. Joining me right now is the CEO and co-founder of a company who has the mission of providing the best, highest quality, dependable, and timely cannabis testing and analytical services. I'm here with founder, co-founder and CEO of Bill Costa Labs, Myron Ronate. Myron, thanks for being on with us. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm really excited about having the discussion today. You bring yourself into the lab space, but before that, you managed sales executives for a company where you were vice president of business development, and you dealt with acquisition strategy, integration of numerous business units, and now you're in labs. You're doing, which obviously is a very... Uh, expansive space, we, we definitely need the help when it comes to compliance, when it comes to having quality testing out there and going through all the various methods that are out there. We need more of that going on. Talk to me about the transition of getting yourself into this space and what uh, what prompted you to go ahead and make that transition? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always was an entrepreneur at heart. I worked in big corporate America And when Prop 64 passed in California, Mm -hmm. I was always a big fan of cannabis and wanted to look at ways to enter the market. I'm a believer in the medicinal benefits and all kinds of benefits on both the recreational and medicinal side. So when that happened, I saw this as an opportunity to enter a brand new industry that's never existed before. And from my background more in the supply chain management, I thought I would go down the path of working, doing some kind of third-party logistics or supply chain. But when California said everybody can vertically integrate, essentially self-distribute their own products, and third-party distribution wasn't required for cannabis like it is for alcohol, when that happened, I looked at the other areas within the cannabis supply chain. And with my legal background and my, you know, in-depth ability to really, you know, care about quality, clean products, I looked at lab testing. Oregon had just gone recreational. There were 19 labs there and a three-month backlog when they went recreational in testing. So from there, I really wanted to look at California's opportunities for lab testing. Uh, I remember the early days, I called 60 different city attorneys within two hours of my house and just trying to find a city that would let any cannabis business even come into their city. I begged them. I said, I just want to start a testing lab. I just want to be public health and safety. 
And I would literally get hung up on by city attorneys in the space. And finally, Long Beach had some existing regulations. We were able to get into the city. We found a, a zone that worked out for us. And we were able to start as one of the first cannabis testing labs in Southern California. Now, with California, and there's always been a criticism, going back to 2016, I can always hear people, without naming names, about people that felt like with California, the testing standards were always subpar. Obviously, with such a large state and with a lot of cultivators and producers out there, they wanted to keep the barrier at a level that would be, I don't know if it's if it's borderline or if it's acceptable, but everybody's always worried about yeast, mold, bacteria, uh, different areas, of different methods of, of the process. And there's always that part, but there's never been a universal testing standard. And, I mean, obviously, we've talked to other labs out there here on Blunt Business on Grassroots Marketing about the level of testing that's out there. And when you look at, if you had to say there were a couple, maybe two or three things, you absolutely have to have that when you are going to get your product tested, what are the, what are three standard bears that need to be met that every state should have and that every company should should have when they're testing their product what should they expect the standards that what are what expectations should they have yeah absolutely i think that for for standards across the board not just california if you look at california we test 66 pesticides many states have the same amount some a few more and some a few less some weren't even testing pesticides but it's very important in my opinion to have strict pesticide testing for cannabis products because you are lighting and inhaling this product. It is being processed typically through the lungs and not through the stomach that can handle a lot more pesticide consumption. So the first thing I would say is pesticide requirements being stringent. I think California has some of the strictest pesticide requirements out there would be the first thing I say that's most important. Uh, the second thing would be heavy metal content as well. California tests for four heavy metals. Other states like Michigan test for seven. Um, and I think metal content within cannabis, cannabis itself as a plant is a bioaccumulator. It sucks up anything that you put in the ground with it. So if it's in soil or there's some problem in that soil or you're getting um, cocoa, for example, that has cadmium in it, the plant is going to suck it up and you are going to then ingest it as a user. So having Heavy metals testing is key as well. And uh, the, you know, microbial testing, which you're talking about, that total yeast yeah. and mold, right? So so this is a, a challenging area within testing. They're, the standardization, every state is very different, what they require, how they require you to test it. There are many different platforms to test it on. Uh, but cannabis with aspergillus, which is the main aspect that we're looking for, is known to have a issue if a person consumes it that has a weak immune system. And so testing, nobody wants to ingest mold, but there's, there's mold in the air that you breathe every single day. So having a more uniform aspergillus and mold testing platform across the country would definitely benefit everybody. And, you know, if you look at what drives and what creates mold, it's humidity levels, it's uh, temperature and the reality is we have that all around us. So growing a plant indoor or outdoors is very challenging. There's mold everywhere. 
It's how to best manage it, but it shouldn't be pervasive throughout an entire grow. Right. <clears throat> it's compliance. It's all about that part. And really, I, I think about the fact of how there's still not enough of a priority, I think, that's being put on compliance. I mean, listen, if you want to make sure that the industry can be self-policed without any kind of intervention from outside sources and let these third parties do what they're doing best, then there need to be people that really put the time and effort to go ahead and find a lab service like yours to really go ahead and keep everything above water. But I don't think there's that emphasis has still not been reached yet. What do you think? So in general, cannabis has gotten exceptionally more difficult over the last, I'd say, 12 months, especially in California. Um, other states are still building, you know, they're still newer. They still are on the upswing and, and allowing dispensaries. But the last 12 to 24 months of California cannabis has been exceptionally difficult. And the pricing bottoming out, too many licenses, the potency issues, the testing issues, they're, they're in the lack, honestly, it, in my opinion, it boils down to the lack of dispensaries being allowed in cities. You still have almost 80% of cities within California that don't allow dispensaries. Well, that makes it pervasive for the traditional market to be able to go in and open up a store. And I was talking to a consumer yesterday and they walked into three stores. They had no idea if they were legal or illegal. They happened to be, when they told me what city they were in, I happened to know that that city doesn't even allow dispensaries. So all those dispensaries were illegal traditional market dispensaries. And, and that consumer had no idea. Yeah. And so so California and other states, they need to help. They have other states need to require that they allow and require dispensaries in every city. Uh, it should be treated just like a liquor store is treated. It shouldn't be, you know, locked out of a certain location. The consumer has to know and should be aware that these cities allow dispensaries or don't make it well known and that they're going to be buying at a legal a buying a legal product because that's the only way they know that it's being tested that it's safe to consume now a few weeks a few me a few uh about a month and a half back i spoke with the folks of biomary you and maria mcintyre head of cannabis safety operations you know, I'm like, you're talking about a 50 year old company that's done a lot of work in terms of microbiology and just where they come to the cannabis space and one of the areas where we spoke extensively about was the issues of molds specifically aspergillus and the risk it can create to the cannabis supply chain and cause detriment to brands. And <coughs> more has been talked about that. Uh, there was an article on Mycology 101 from Cannabis Science and Technology talking about uh, where species of the genera aspergillus, penicillium, and rhizopus were associated with cannabis plant diseases and stability after harvesting and storage. And because of this fungal pathogen presence, for those that might be immunocompromised, com immunocompromised, and they're ingesting, inhaling, smoking the product, and if there's any of those kind of molds that are in there, and they get passed through the inspection process, the the fact that that mold contamination can affect the whole supply chain, loss of product, product being burned and destroyed, it's that constant reminder of the dangers if compliance isn't met. So when you look at stories like this where aspergillus has been an issue, that level of mold and how deadly or how threatening it could be to business, also to people's livelihoods, 
Is that something that you do quite a bit of focus through at Bell Costa Labs? We are heavily focused on aspergillus and really helping our clients that have aspergillus issues overcome those problems, right? So the challenge with aspergillus is as a lab, let's in California, for example, and I'll talk about other states too. In California, the match, the max batch size of flour is 50 pounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the re- state requirements are for labs to take 0.35% of that batch, which on a 50 pound batch is about 80 grams. And so that's still 50 pounds and I'm taking 80 grams. I now I homogenize that all together. I, I try to combine it all to try to find that aspergillus. And then after that, after I homogenize it all together for aspergillus testing, the state requires us to test one gram. So it goes 50 pounds down to a homogenized dust particle, basically of, of uh, 80 grams down to my at lab taking one gram sample. So we're hoping in that, that we find it, but there's still 50 pounds in many States that the batch sizes are hundred pounds. Some States, I think like Nevada has five or 10 pound batches. So they're much smaller, but on the States that have a large batch size, 50 to hundred pounds, it's still a needle in a haystack to find that aspergillus. And it is still an agricultural crop that grows in the environment, whatever environment's growing in. So be, and once we test it in California, for example, we could test it before it's even packaged. So aspergillus can come in after the packaging. Aspergillus can become, can grow when it's stored improperly in the dispensary. If it's stored in the heat, if there's too much humidity, if there's too much moisture mm-hmm. in there, there are so many ways for aspergillus to grow, which, so, which is why I'm also a proponent of having shorter shelf lives for cannabis for ongoing testing. California requires a batch to be tested every 12 months. I hope on an agricultural crop, we're turning it more than once every 12 months. Um, And we don't see a lot of that testing, but it is out there as well. And it really comes down to storage conditions, the condition of the product, the packaging. There's so many factors that go into it. It's it's so difficult. I want to take from a story from MJ Biz Daily that, you were quoted on about how cannabis testing labs help put undue focus on THC potency. And when they asked you, you had mentioned that you had warned against pushing too hard for terpenes to be the main quality indicator and that you'd like to see product labels offer more information about terpene profiles. And you said, quote, are people going to spray extra terpenes on their flower? Are labs going to have incorrect terpene profiles? There's a lot of risk inherent in the whole industry. And, I want to ask you if you want to expand on that just for the fact that um, that obviously there should be more things put on the bottle, more things in terms of not necessarily safety measures, but more about what you're getting in your product. Yeah. So my team, uh, with the help of a brand, did a little round-robin study where we blind sampled about uh, 10 cannabis products with 15 different people and without telling them the potency, the terpene content, and we asked them to kind of rate the cannabis. And what we've started digging into and uncovering is what we call the potency to terpene ratio. So we know that potency is important, but it really all, but terpenes are, are also just as important, if not more important. Unfortunately, with the lack of time to study and medical, do real medical studies with terpenes, we know ancillary effects and, and, annotations about what terpenes do and how they affect people. 
So over time, I can definitely see this improving. But what we're looking at is what we believe a tighter potency to terpene ratio. Now, again, potency matters. So a 10% flour with a 1% terpene ratio, the 1% of terpenes would be the same as like a 30 to 3. So there is a factor that we're trying to uncover and figure out exactly where that sweet spot is. But what we found is the tighter ratio coupled with the product is what's important. And when I talked about terpenes on MJ Biz, on MJ Biz, what I what I really want to be aware of is we we don't need people to go out and spray terpenes. If you go grow quality product, you're going to have a high terpene content. We should be looking at that terpene content. We should be right. labeling terpene content. And we definitely don't need things entering the market to confuse consumers. In mm-hmm. fact, one of my biggest beliefs on fixing the potency issue is really, what if we just stop labeling potency on the label? Still test it, but stop labeling it for consumers for a period of time, a year or two. And then we have to sell on something else. But what are we selling on? In the old days, we could go into a dispensary and they would hand you a jar and you'd be able to smell the flower, be able to look at it. But post-COVID, I've been in dispensaries and they, they show you a jar, but they won't even hand it to you to touch or look at or get a closer look at. So you know, with bud tender turnover and challenges in that space, the only thing they can go off is selling potency. And that's really not going to give the consumer the best effects. There's so much more. Is it sun grown? Is it indoor? What are the genetics? What, you know, of the terpenes that are most prevalent in it, what are those effects? Is it sedative? Is it energetic? Um, Is it high, have high THCV maybe, uh, which is more energetic? I mean, what are the sub compounds, the sub cannabinoids present there? There's so many things to talk about except just potency. And so when I said I don't want them to just talk about terpenes, it's more to I want to make sure that the industry doesn't flip from one challenging aspect of potency to the next challenging aspect of terpenes. But I do want the industry to focus on terpenes because it gives the consumer the best effects. Thank you for doing the yeoman's work. I really do appreciate you taking time out to go ahead and let us know more about this because it's it's crucial it's very important we get more information about this and hopefully we get a universal standard out there and that more companies will realize look i mean all these mso's you're worrying about acquisitions you're worrying about finding other products or other ways to kind of cut corners you know that that, that compliance has to be so crucial and key and that we cannot just rely on the betters of these state control boards to police they already have enough problem just trying to control the illicit market let alone the illegal market so again i'm here with the ceo of bell costa labs the website is bellcostalabs.com b-e-l-c-o-s-t-a labs and for those especially in california if they'd like to go ahead and work with you how can they learn more and what they should they do once they go to the website yeah they can reach out to us through the website we are happy to conduct bud tender trainings again that that's key for us to help the can pass knowledge along to the consumer that's not all about potency. So we'll conduct pot, uh, bud tender trainings on any clients that have known aspergillus or pesticide problems. We're able to help identify those issues and help solve where they're coming from. We have over five years of experience in this space, which in grand scheme of things seems pretty small, but we've been through a lot in California and we can help solve a lot of problems. So I encourage anybody who has any issues to reach out to us with questions and we can help solve them. Fantastic. So really appreciate you being on the show with us here, Myron. Thanks for being on again, Myron Rone with Bill Costa Labs. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much.
Stay tuned. We have more Blunt Business coming up after a short break. Plant profits will return so our sponsors can profit from these messages. Welcome back to Blunt Business. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Time to introduce our next guest. He is the owner of White Coat Laboratories. I'm joined right now with Aaron Appleby. Thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you coming on with us, and we're glad to have you on. So you spoke at NoCo Hip Expo 2023, and there was a panel you spoke on, which was titled Understanding Cannabis Ecology to Better Manipulate Secondary Secondary Metabolites and Pest Populations. So with that said, your work, specifically coming out of Washington State University, studying, you've been specializing in organic pesticides with an added chapter, uh, focusing on the hemp russet mite and other, and, and also on fiber hemp. And also, uh, you've worked a lot when it, becoming a certified crop advisor or working in cannabis. And talk to me about the issues we do have out there that cultivators are dealing with when it comes to pest control. Yeah, you know, we have less chemicals that we get to use than normal agriculture um, in the cannabis space. In hemp in particular, since it's only been legal since 2018, the EPA is far behind in registering many of those pesticides. Those pesticides that they have been able to register for us are mainly uh, soft chemicals. A lot of them are microbials. Uh, And so for our toolbox, we have much less tools in them than normal agriculture. And not only that, but we also have less information to the farmers. We haven't been able to disseminate much of that information from the universities through extension like we have with other crops. And so with White Coat Laboratories, we're just trying to bring some of that information to the farmers. And with that said, what can you tell me so far has been an ongoing issue that you've dealt with that um, what has been most Specifically in the grow itself, what is the biggest issue right now that is encompassing most while many farmers, uh, many growers are always wary of sustainability, any particular pesticides, trying to keep everything about as organic as possible to the plant? Yeah, well, luckily, most of those chemicals that we do get to use with cannabis are organic in nature. Uh, However, we see a lot of problems with spraying anything in as soon as flowers begins a lot of those chemicals are starting to pull off in the concentrates that we're creating and so really our main use with those chemicals are going to be early in the vegetative stage as we start to move towards flower we start to move away from a lot of those chemicals and many growers are starting to use commercially available biological control agents such as predatory mites or parasitoidal wasps and such of that nature. A main problem that we're seeing with a lot of these growers is that when we're able to mass release these biological control agents, they don't stay in our crop very long. They want to leave. And I think a lot of that problem comes from how we're growing those crops. 
we're we don't have a whole lot of ground cover often we're black plastic or um our rows are mowed down pretty short and with what co laboratories we're trying to understand what's going to be able to keep those beneficial insects or mites beneficial arthropods if you will in our crop longer and so we've started to work with some of these native beneficial flowers or other plantings of flowering crops that we can then try to attract these beneficial arthropods and maintain them once they get there so they don't just leave our crop as soon as it is that we release them is this mostly a problem that is effective for outdoor grows? Is this something that can be effective to indoor grows? Yeah, I think both. Uh, I think outdoor in particular, because they have so many other options available to them, that cannabis is a very hostile plant to most insects. Even insects that are specialists of cannabis are finding that those secondary metabolites, terpenoids, flavonoids, the cannabinoids, they're all pesticidal in nature. And so they're actually damaging some of these pests as they're feeding on it. So they want to go somewhere else in particular, but so do our beneficials. And they'll try to find these flowering plants that they can use for their pollen and nectar sources. But inside, when these beneficial arthropods are looking for these pests and they're not finding them readily available they might then try to go find them elsewhere then flying into lights they're getting trapped in other places in the grow if greenhouse they'll get trapped often in that plastic or the coverings and so we're seeing it both in indoor and outdoor we're having trouble keeping our beneficials to search for the pests now, the other thing I want to take from is the importance of why this is so important because of the fact of how big an issue it is to keep pest management and, and control very important. Cannabis plants, according to a story from Cannabis Industry Journal, they put out a story about the science of cultivating cannabis for a thriving grow operation. They said that plants are susceptible to over 90 plus pests and diseases. Insects, mold, mildew, viruses, and viroids commonly infected the environment through touch, air, water, and nutrients. Uh, now, they also say that the United Nations, where they put a report out how 20 to 40% of total global crop loss is due to improper pest and disease management. Cannabis is no different. Yeah. So from some of the research you've already done, I see that there have been a lot of people that you've been working with right now at various farms and getting the word out through shows like the Hemp Expo. Uh, you've been working and talking about you know, so the various growers on the subject. What is in from what you've seen? What is the amount of crop loss that could be deterred, like that could be reversed, if better pest management was in place? I mean, how much money? That's the thing, I guess, for these business owners. How much money are you going to get back if you're investing in better pest management and much more strenuous pest management? And I think that's part of the problem, again, with the lack of information in the crop, cannabis in particular, is that many other crops have economic thresholds for these pests. Now, those are going to take several four plus years to create such an economic threshold so that we can understand just how much pests are can be allowed and then how much damage the plants can take before that 
economy is going to start being disrupted. While we don't have a lot of those numbers, I do see in particular indoor where those pests get in and then they don't have their native beneficials around to deter them from feeding on that, especially we see a lot of those in mm-hmm. spider mites are a particular problem that we see indoor where we don't really see a huge problem of those pests outdoor because their native beneficials are around and able to reduce those pest populations. Something I'm a big proponent of is that while pests are a problem, some studies are actually showing that small amounts of pests may actually increase our secondary metabolite production. And so to have this idea that we want zero pests may not be the right line of thought for us anymore. And we may, in fact, want some level of pests to increase stressors and proper stressors for those plants to then increase those secondary metabolites of interest for us. Right. Not so much pest control, but pest management. That's why I wanted to make sure I saw when I see across there, I can understand like with the grows for various other agriculture there are some cases where some pests that are going to be able to go ahead and actually influence or actually benefit as opposed to hurt. Now, the other part that comes into play is what are the states allowing? Because there's an issue also about how there are certain pesticides. So back in December, Massachusetts had a deal where, you know, the Department of Agricultural Resources adjusted policy on the use of pesticides on cannabis, that they were allowing certain pesticides that were need to be registered with EPA Registered for use in hemp, Massachusetts, labeled for both hemp and tobacco. Uh, product must be without days to harvest or indoor use. A lot of different very a lot of different rules that have to be put in this. And they wanted to put they wanted to have the jurisdiction over pesticides within the Commonwealth. So the question is, there are certain states that probably also have a limit of what you can use to help control uh, to help with pest management. What is that? Uh, what do you know about that area and what? states are the most uh, strenuous and the most the most strict when it comes to these kind of things to help in that respect okay well yeah i have worked very closely with washington and oregon growers which we have two separate lists right so we have what's called this pico list um these pesticides that can be used on cannabis and because we legalized high thc cannabis before the 2018 farm bill came out some of those pesticides are different than what is allowed to be used by the epa again most of those chemicals are organic in nature many of them are generally regarded as safe uh, so we have these low risk pesticides that often are microbial in nature or organic uh, that we can use on cannabis that again cannot be used on hemp now i do know that new york is trying to keep both of those lists to be the same so if there is a one that the epa has registered that they don't have available for high thc they want to go ahead and make that available for their growers so that what's used on cannabis is just straight across the line there's no difference for hemp or high thc cannabis And again, that's not the same for every state. And especially in states that were legal with high THC cannabis before hemp was legalized by the 2018 Farm Bill. 
So it's very important that if you're moving from state to state or if you're from one state and you've been growing there for a long time and then start to work in another state to go ahead and check those pesticides that they're legal or not. And again, because pesticide labels are federally regulated, that's federal law. And so we're just trying to help our farmers understand those risks and what it is that they can use to mitigate some of the problems in the pests. This is that back and forth kind of deal because there are those that want sustainability, want everything organic. They're worried about what kind of pesticides and what organic components they have to it because there's also the part where in certain states, even Washington, they closed down a business because there was a, you know, because of the thought, thought of a cancer causing pesticide. Seattle Media reported on that. Or in California, talking about how pesticides from illegal cannabis was being was contaminating california waterways these kind of things are also just going to draw the ire of cannabis cannabis control boards and departments of agriculture in various states to see okay what are they gonna have to worry about there's even in washington about pesticide ddt derivatives being put into some washington cannabis plants these kind of things are going on without i'm not looking for you to go and defend i'm just saying these things are going to affect these cannabis control boards they're going to say we need to do something about this warnings will be put out what's going to be allowed what's not going to be allowed if you have the chance to talk to these various states that are getting their they're getting these complaints about this or they're getting these obstacles being in front what would you say based on what you've done in washington oregon what should these other states be cognizant of yeah first off washington just passed a law that our cannabis needs to be tested for pesticides. Now, that may sound great to the consumers, but we have to understand what pesticides they're testing for. Because if you're not testing for a pesticide, you'll never find that pesticide. And so the pesticides that Washington legally has to test for in their cannabis are pesticides that aren't allowed to be used on cannabis anyway. So these are really looking for bad actors rather than to tell you if your cannabis has pesticides used on it. Now, again, these organic or these soft chemical pesticides are still pesticides. And so many people are getting confused that because these producers are saying pesticide-free or free or tested free of pesticides that they did not use pesticides when that may not be the case. Mm -hmm. And so again, other than pyrethrins and PBOs, which are a enhancer to pyrethrins so that less pyrethrins have to be used. Those are the only two chemicals that we're allowed to use that are even being tested. And I think that's important for the consumer to understand It's also important for the consumer to have those relationships with the farmers so that they know if it truly is pesticide free or if they're just free, tested of free of pesticides. Again, only bad actors are going to be found out with this pesticide testing. And I think that's important for the consumer. Now that DDT, DDE, DDD, that's really crazy, right? Those are legacy pesticides from way back in the day, orchards in particular. And these chemicals are not being applied by the growers in any way, shape, or form. These have been illegal for years, but they're 
so persistent in the soil and cannabis is such a wonderful bioaccumulator of those chemicals. That's why it's used to remediate toxic sites and whatnot, that it may be actually pulling those chemicals up. And so many of these farmer or farm owners may not have even known that these were in their site. So maybe they're not bad actors or maybe they were just negligent and looking deep enough into the history of their sites to understand if there are orchards. I don't know if some of these growers were even in tuned enough to agriculture to know that by purchasing an old orchard site that some of these chemicals would have been around. I think it's important for the consumer for us to look deeper into this. I think it was jumped a little quick in Washington to shut down all sites in that area. Um, but I do think it's important for us to have a little deeper dive for the consumers to understand that the products are safe or if some of those grows need to be moved to a new location. I talk about compliance a lot on this program and our companion series, Blunt Business, but we always talk about it from the processing side. We never take enough time, and I'm going to be, I'm going to blame myself. I we don't get enough time because we don't have enough guests that come on like yourself that will talk about the grow themselves. We can talk about sustainability. We can talk about all the processes. Oh, we use, you know, melted water from mountains to go ahead and irrigate the crops and all this. Like that's like in the, what, Mendocino County or something like that. Mount Shasta, I remember. Or we could talk about, you know, where, which, which seeds are being used and, you know, the types of seeds and how organic and how certified they are, all these things we can go into, into account. But we just brought up several points. The cost component, because if proper pest management is in place, you're actually saving more of the crop. You're losing less. Yeah. So we're talking about like the, the, the possible loss that you're going to have if you don't properly comply above and beyond what is required from state boards. The same thing needs to be applied here because in the same way, FDA, they don't want to go and give uh, implementation on hemp. You know, can't got, the policymakers don't want to give any kind of regulation or oversight on cannabis. So it's up to the industry itself to police itself and be above and beyond the bare minimum of compliance. And that doesn't just apply to inside the processing from the re all the way to retail. We say seed to sale because it starts at seed. It starts in the grow. So with that said, is there anything, I mean, we hear various, you know, certifications or, or, or seals and all these things that people try to say that, to try to make people stand by their product of how properly they're doing, oh, pesticide free, organic free, EPA for what all this stuff, right? Yeah. What would be, now we also have been hearing about, about, um, GMPs. I don't know if that even applies to cultivation, but that's another part of, uh, part of this gamut that some companies are now consultants are trying to go and bring into play as well. That's been used in Europe and overseas. What is What would be if somebody wanted to go ahead and invest and make sure that they were doing proper pest management and compliance from the beginning of the grow is put in place, what should these grows have? Well, I think it all begins with proper identification. Mm -hmm. First, you have to understand what pests are there. By understanding what pests are there, we can then understand what chemistries to use if that's a road that we want to take. By understanding what chemistries, we can use less that are going to be more specific towards those pests, less towards maybe some of our beneficials that are out there. We also, I think it's important 
to know that this runs all the way up, right? So as soon as we allowed for this new law to pass that had us testing for pesticides, we saw a huge decrease in the price of our cannabis. There was a lot of producers that were trying to get rid of their glut that they may have sprayed with pesticides that were going to need to be tested soon. So they had to get this product out. That's terrible for the consumer. That's terrible for the producers who now have to compete with this price point that doesn't properly reflect what it takes to grow cannabis. There are all sorts of downstream effects that are negative when we have bad players in the game. And I think that is just the case for those who are calling their product pesticide free when using soft chemicals. Now, I think the organic agriculture is a great point for this. Washington is moving for a certification, one like you had just mentioned, these, you know, uh, certified green, clean, and some of these others. Well, Washington is now moving forward with a certified cannabis. And that logo is going to look very similar to the certified organic logo. And it will have the exact same regulations to be called organic. But because the crop is not federally legal, they are, have a different logo and uh, name for that. And when the consumer thinks organic products, they immediately two things pop to their mind and why they would use or purchase organic products. Mm-hmm. First being they believe that it's pesticide free which we just talked about may not be the case. Correct. In fact, most probably aren't. However, those chemistries may be softer or have less of a concern for those consumers. Now, the applicators themselves may be just at risk. Some of those products may be more acutely toxic to those applicators. So there is some risk there, but the consumer may have a less risk. And then second, that it's more nutritious. And so these two things are immediately thought of by consumers as to why they would purchase organic products. And for us to label our products pesticide-free when in fact they're they're not, they're maybe synthetic pesticide-free, is just misconsuming or misinforming the consumer. And by allowing it to have that organic label on it or that certified label on it, The consumers can then do their due diligence and understand that there may be pesticides being sprayed on these, but that their risk may be lower than, say, some of these harsher chemicals that normal agriculture would be able to use on their products. What a great discussion. Aaron, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us about this because this is an area that we don't get to cover much. And I I mean, I'm glad that NoCom Expo considered you to go ahead and speak on the panel you did on the cannabis ecology manipulating secondary metabolites and pest populations because this gives me into this larger subject because this is the part of the grow where i don't get many people like this and i'm glad that you were able to go and give me this insight because i haven't gotten this from everyone out there and there's a whole lot more in the weeds we can get into about this i'm sure we don't have enough time for it because if we really wanted to go very chemical and very uh you know, molecular, I'm sure you could, but I would. Be, it would be way over my pay grade. This is already over my pay grade as it is. So <laughs> uh, now, since people didn't get a chance, if they didn't get a chance to speak with you at No Come Expo, 
is there anything you can tell us on how people can go and continue to connect with you, uh, White Coat Laboratories? Anything else you could tell us about how people can stay in touch with you and how they can stay connected with you to learn more? Thank you for asking. So until just recently, I was only connected in the mycelium network. I just recently produced a uh, social media network through LinkedIn, which is a great way to find me at this moment. White Coat Laboratories and myself both have some sites for LinkedIn. We are in the process of getting our website, whitecoatlaboratories.com, up and running. So hopefully we'll have that for you all soon. We also have a website called 502 Insects, where we are in the process of cataloging all the insects we have found on cannabis. So there may be some areas there where you can help to identify some of your insects, whether they be good or bad. That site is still under construction. Don't be turned off by the immediate page that says it is under construction. It's still usable. So we would love to get have you get a hold of us through any of those ways. We're always looking to collaborate. We're always looking for more research to be done. So if you have property or you have questions, does this help? Does that help? We would love to help you solve some of those questions. White Coat Laboratories. Look so, us up. What, so would it be the best way? LinkedIn would be the best way to reach out to you? Yep. At the moment, LinkedIn would be the best way for you to get a hold of me under Aaron Appleby. Okay. We'll make sure to get that. So again, LinkedIn and look for Aaron Appleby. You'll be able to go and find him. And by the way, if you want to look for him direct it is linkedin.com slash Aaron, A-A-R-O-N hyphen Appleby, A-P-P-L-E-B-Y. Check it with him and obviously you'll see updates on the 520 Cannabis and White Coat Laboratories updates on that and a way that you can definitely connect directly to him. Aaron Appleby, Certified Crop Advisor, White Coat Laboratories. Thank you for being on. Thank you again for having me. I look forward to connecting. And thank you listeners for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time. opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.